0: I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, as we slowly start to reemerge from the pandemic, will the world be the same place? And will we still recognize who we are?
1: Aside from the fact I've not had a haircut since February, 2020, (laughs) and I look like a really bad version of Patty Smith. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I just think we're changing and that's good, you know? In the midst of our grief, in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our gratitudes, in the midst of moments of such beauty
0: i talk with acclaimed writer and conservationist terry tempest williams on the art and beauty of language rebirth and discovery
1: we cannot stop spring we cannot stop joy even in the midst of horrendous suffering you know how do we find the strength within us not to look away from all that is breaking our hearts i want to be able to keep my eyes open
0: writing through the storm with terry tempest williams coming up on kcrw's life examined for acclaimed author terry tempest williams words are important as a writer she can carry her craft anywhere but for the last year she has hunkered down surrounded by the natural beauty of the red desert mountains in castle valley utah a landscape she describes as both eroding and evolving With her pen as her tool, Terry Tempest-Williams looks for beauty where there often is none to be found. She uses language and stories to alleviate a broken heart, and believes that a grief shared is a grief endured. The acclaimed author of many books, including Finding Beauty in a Broken World, and The Hour of Land, a personal topography of America's national parks, Terry Tempest-Williams' latest collection is called Erosion, Essays of Undoing. There's no shortage of issues close to her heart, the land, climate, conservation, and politics. But these days, a bigger question is on her mind, figuring out what's happening in this moment in time. When will we emerge? And when we do, who will we be? Well, Terry Tempest-Williams, it's a privilege and a pleasure to have you join us for the full hour of Life Examined. Welcome.
1: Jonathan, it's an honor to be on your show. And I love imagining being with you with a cup of tea, sitting on the beach by the pier in San Juan. <laughs> it's like a dream to me here in the desert.
0: That's a wonderful image to start our conversation today. And, you know, I, oftentimes I, I like to start conversations with more exact or pointed questions, but but I want to start with a very basic one, which is which is how are you? How are you where you are right now? As somebody who reflects so deeply on questions of social change, of environmentalism, how are you right now?
1: Thank you for asking. Um, You know, we're coming off of one of the most beautiful full moons I've ever witnessed here in the desert, Mm -hmm. the pascal moon or the worm moon, because the ground is softened for the worms and the robins to retrieve them. Uh, last night, we had a beautiful dinner um, in the desert in Castle Valley with two dear friends, and it was beautiful. You know, we, I think, are aware of our privilege to be in a landscape like this, where to the east, with the rising sun, is Castleton Tower, a 400 foot Wingate monolith of sandstone. Um, to the south, the LaSalle Mountains rise. And as I'm speaking to Jonathan, they are white with snow, hmm. um, rising 12,000 feet above sea level. To the west is Porcupine Rim with the setting sun. And to the north is the Colorado River running red, even as the snow melts. So we feel very lucky. I'm aware of our privilege. Um, and living in an erosional landscape. Uh, hmm it feels like we are both eroding and evolving at once. Hmm.
0: The word erosion is is a powerful one and it's one that framed your last major book which was a series of essays and it's you called that book a howl which i love it speaks to the intensity i think of the language and the ideas in it. Can you tell me a little bit more about that howl what what was in there?
1: Well, as you know i never assume that we all share the same politics, um, especially living in Utah. But the last four or five years have been rough with the former president and talk about an erosion of democracy, erosion of decency. Um, It was a hell. And I write, and I think I, I tried to figure out what does this mean and where it may not be about hope, but it's knowing where hope dwells. And for me, hope always dwells in open space. And so this is a a collection of essays that really look at public lands, open lands, wild lands, what's happened to them in the last few years and what hope we might glean um, from history.
0: Hmm. How have you felt in the past six months? Have you felt a shift in you, a hopefulness? Where where has your mind taken you?
1: You know, I think we've been present. Um, hope isn't a word I usually use in my vocabulary. I'm more comfortable with faith coming out of a Mormon tradition. I remember my great-grandmother, Valet, Romney Lee, who was born... Uh, My grandmother, Letty Romney Dixon, was born in Mexico, where my great-grandmother was, they fled because of polygamy, and we are related to Mitt Romney. Um, But I'll never forget, as as a young girl of 12, she said to me, Terry, faith without works is dead. And that, to me, seems more powerful than hope. Hope feels like it's attached to our desires and expectations, whereas faith, Demands an engagement. I, I have to say, though, Jonathan, you know, I was reading Dictionary of Undoing by mm. John Freeman mm-hmm. and I looked up his definition of hope, and that was a hope I could embrace. He talks about hope being a force field. And I have felt in the last, um, certainly in the last few months, and I would say since the election, um, that there is a force field of action. And I think particularly in this pandemic, you know, that we thought was a pause that is now a place. I think it has brought all of us home to our knees um, with a full span of emotion from grief to gratitude. Mm. And the question I'm thinking about now is how will we emerge and who will we emerge as?
0: Mm. That line you just said, a pause that is now a place really, really caught me. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, I remember, you know, I was teaching at the Harvard Divinity School and I went to a dinner party. There were six of us. Um, The woman who hosted it was on the front lines of research of COVID and was working with, at Mass General. And she, we walked in and there was a bottle of, you know, hand sanitizer on each of our place settings. And she said, I've called you here because here's what I want you to know. And she outlined exactly what happened. On Monday, I went and said to my students, you know, I'm not reactionary. I think this will be our last class. Let's revise our syllabus and be open to what comes. And that's what we did. Harvard announced on Tuesday that they were closing. I took a Zoom class. And on Wednesday morning, At 4.30 a.m., I was on a plane to Salt Lake City and got in my car that was at my father's house and was home in 10 hours. So, you know, the shock I think that we all felt of then on that Friday having to be locked down, that felt like, okay, we're in a pause. We can get through this. But as it continued and as the deaths rose and there was no public mourning or grieving and we saw what was happening on the streets, you know, today, we're in the court case still with um, George Floyd and racial injustice all around us. Um, five hundred, you know, thousand people dead now. This is not a pause. this is a place. And the only thing I know about place is it demands that we be present.
2: Hmm.
1: And we're here. And we're all learning, I think, deep truths um, by what we are experiencing
0: writers of course have a have an incredible way of of making sense of of chaos of putting words to it and as you have found yourself burrowed into this place uh, in, in the wondrous Utah landscape how have you filled the time what ideas have come to you how have you been uh, using your pen
1: it's such a great question jonathan well when when i returned home to my husband brooke um we've lived here 25 years in castle valley the first thing on my mind was my brother he had covid Hmm. Uh, he works pipeline construction um he was very very ill and we welcomed him into this house. The doctor said it's low risk, but it's not no risk. We had to help him in from the car. Um, he stayed in our, you know, extra bedroom and he stayed with us for three months. Mm-hmm. And I watched him go from where he could not even walk to when he left, he was walking nine miles a day with his dogs. So for those first three months, the focus was really being together as Family as our pod, so to speak. During that time, I was teaching a class called "Finding Beauty in the Broken World," and the way I used my pen, which is your question, was we had an opportunity—14 students and myself—to create a coyote chaplaincy hmm. with the University of Utah Hospital, which is a satellite hospital for the Intermountain West, Utah, Idaho, Wyoming, New Mexico. And what we found um, was that they needed inspiration. They could not curate inspiration for themselves. These were the doctors and nurses and you know, workers on the front lines at that hospital. And so we created, the students did, of a six week curriculum of inspiration, poetry, short stories, essays, letters, letter writing, um, if we could make calls, um, photo, essays Mm. and you know we had a student who's a literal rock star she did playlists each week as well as you know original rock videos Mm. Um, my commitment when my students came back and said what are you going to do I said I'll commit to writing daily dispatches from the desert they started out maybe 300 words they went to 500 words and what I could never have imagined Jonathan is I ended up writing an essay a day and wrote 25 essays um i felt for the first time i was a writer that i was doing real work that as my brothers work in the trenches with the shovel as their tool um, my pen was and i showed up every day and i absolutely loved it and so did the students and you know to me each of us plays our part each of us is a tessera in this mosaic of this moment Um, and I would say you know I've been engaged in collaborations this is an isolating time and we're in an isolated place and so the work I've been doing is um, a collaboration with a photographer named Fuzzle Shake a collaboration with uh, a podcast Mm -hmm. uh, genius named uh, Bianca Giever. Uh, we did night walks together, and then sent audio letters, and a collaboration with a dear friend of mine, Mary Frank, who's 88 years old, around fire, and all the while teaching. So that's what I've been doing. I've been deeply engaged with people I love.
2: Mm.
0: What you said about feeling like being a writer for the first time is 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 beautiful and surprising as somebody who spent their life as a as an established writer. But but what I hear in this is uh, using this gift, as you describe it, I mean, to, to directly influence and impact and try and make things a little bit lighter. I feel like sometimes with art, we, we, we don't know where it's going to go. We don't know how it's going to land. But writing in a crisis seems to be uh, almost of a different magnitude.
1: And it was, you know, how can we be of use? Mm. You know, what do we have to offer? And, you know, I think writing can get very precious where you think oh it has to be perfect we have to find the exact word you know how will it be greeted or not and it none of that mattered Hmm. at all what mattered was what story can i tell today that may elevate a broken heart you know or how can i meet someone who is grieving with my own grief um so that a grief shared is a grief endured how can you know, the first ladder pod into focus for those who are inside an i c u unit you know, so it was those kinds of questions. Um, what do we have that can ease the sorrow that that is being carried? Hmm. and I think all of the students felt that, and you know there was one student who couldn't leave the dorms at Harvard and there was nobody there. And so what he did as part of the coyote chaplaincy was take pictures of, of an empty Harvard yard. And what he focused on was grass or Ivy returning or a cardinal Mm -hmm. in, in a black Oak, you know? So I think each person found their way. We had students that were, um, sent back home to pakistan and she did these beautiful letters um to the nurses about what it was like to be in pakistan and that you know her definition of healing Mm -hmm. so each person brought themselves they showed up um yeah with where they were and who they are
0: You don't by any chance have any of your own writing on this handy, do you, or nearby?
1: I do. You know, as we're talking, you know, we're really talking about offerings. Mm. And what was so moving is that after this was done, about two or three months later, um, the people that we had worked with, Tom Miller, who is you know, the attending CEO for the University of Utah Medical Center um, with a beautiful team. Uh, They published a little book for us called Offerings from the Coyote Chaplaincy. Mm. And, And so I'm reading from that. I can read you a very short one. That would be great. This one is just so simple. April 7th. 2020, Castle Valley, Utah. This morning, I asked Brooke what we could do to make this day feel productive. He said, not that interested. I don't know, but I'm sure you'll figure it out. So I walked into the kitchen and sat down on the floor cross-legged and began to clean out a particular cupboard. It held Brooke's grandmother, Helen Spencer Williams' silver tea set that his mother, Rosemary Williams, had given to us. It was almost black with tarnish. I thought about my own grandmothers and how they would always polish the silver before a dinner party or holiday gathering or a Sunday family dinner after church. And I suddenly longed for those gatherings. And before I realized it, I instinctively began polishing Helen's tea set. Each piece in hand revealing such beauty of form and purpose. I thought about her hands a century ago doing this same ritual that took time. I remembered family stories about her generosity of spirit, how she was kind and honored the dignity of each person. She was said to be curious. I felt close to her, though we never met. And then I took the shining tea set outside and put it on our table. I thought about how wonderful that day will be, when we can invite neighbors over for tea. I found myself hoping everyone in the valley was all right, and healthy, and my thoughts traveled to friends and family afar and near as my anxious mind returned to me. I sat down at the table and listened to the quiet and was grateful for the wind.
0: Hmm. That was beautiful. I love it so much because there's something so deeply relatable to all of us in this moment, where we've been inside, where we've been pulling open old cupboards filled with dust, removing things we haven't seen, engaging with them in new ways, and yet uh, the metaphor in there, where it takes you, is 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 wonderful. Can you can you say a little bit more about it?
1: Well, it was such a simple thing, mm. and and I think it's what you said. We open these cupboards, and it's like huh (laughs) what is this tea set doing in here that is completely you know darkened by time and and then to pull it out and and suddenly see her hands my mother's hands my grandmother's hands and and what a tea set represents and how far away that feels right now so i think it was just something simple um, and yet as you say, you know, carries the profundity of the stories that a simple object can hold through time. And I think I wanted to just slow down time so that, you know, a nurse who was tending for the dying of COVID-19, you know, could come home and if she read that, she could slow down too and see her own hands, even in the hands of of my great-grandmother's tea set.
0: Yeah, there's been this this incredible slowing down, hasn't there, in this new place that we've all entered?
1: I think that it scares me to think of my life before. (laughs) It was a life of motion, and I kept thinking about Robert Pinsky when he said motion can be a place too. But I don't want to go back to that other life. I don't. And I'm figuring out how I can take this gift of slowness and patience and focus um, and time um, when we reemerge in in the world as, as we knew it, which I don't think will be recognizable anymore because we are not the same and we are not recognizable. I mean, if, aside from the fact I've not had a haircut since February 2020. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it looked like a really bad version of Patty Smith.
2: Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> you know, I just think we, we're we changing, and that's good, you know, in the midst of our grief, in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our gratitudes, in the midst of, of moments of such beauty. Mm. Um, and I think we've all appreciated the natural world more. I mean to have a spring where the meadowlarks return are singing with the full force of their beings, you know, to appreciate this paschal moon, to watch life return and the the potent resonance that we will return to. But again that question, you know, how will we emerge and who we will emerge as i think not only has there been a slowness that we have been forced to embrace i also think that in the isolation um we have been allowed to use our imaginations to think differently more broadly um, both practically as well as poignantly and here's an example i have a student And I don't think she would mind if I mentioned her name. I will just say Maisie. She is from China and she's an extraordinary artist. She cannot show her work because galleries are closed. And yet it wasn't that she wanted to show her work from a commercial standpoint, but she wanted to share her work. So Jonathan, Hmm. this young woman lives near Santa Monica. And two weeks ago, she took her painting and it is huge. It's like seven feet by three feet. And she walked with her painting along the Santa Monica beach
2: Mm,
1: by the pier. And every Friday, she chooses a different neighborhood within Los Angeles. And she is a walking gallery. And what's been fascinating is her courage, her generosity, um, her patience, because most people ignore her and her paintings are not something to be ignored. They're powerful. It's a woman laying on the earth with mushrooms coming up out of her body Mm -hmm. through wounds that she has sewn jewels in. People have ignored her. Some have shunned her, others have engaged her, whether it was in sort of a, a, a seedy neighborhood of Los Angeles, whether it was standing in the middle of an island um, at a four-way stoplight, whether it was standing outside an in, in an Burger, or on Rodeo Drive or Hollywood um, or Santa Monica. And what she has gleaned from people's questions, from their comments, from their silence, I can't tell you how moving it is. And after the murders of of the Asian people in Georgia, she didn't know if she had the courage as a Chinese woman to go back onto the street with her painting, but she did. And that's when she took her painting for a walk to the ocean, and that was the time that she faced her painting toward the sea. And that was the time when a woman approached her and said, can we talk? And they talked for over an hour about racial injustice and what they can do. And she said, this is what art opens. Hmm. I think that's what the pandemic has allowed us to do is meet in different ways and confront the fear, confront the terror confront the isolation and create community, even if it's a community of two.
0: I've been speaking with Terry Tempest Williams, writer, conservationist, and award-winning author of Erosion, Essays of Undoing, and Refuge, An Unnatural History of Family and Place. She's also the writer-in-residence at Harvard Divinity School and currently spends her time in Castle Valley, Utah. Still to come, We'll be back with Terry Tempest Williams as we discuss inequities, learning how to bridge the political divide, and we'll also get a reading having to do with the powerful blazes that sweep through California and the Southeast. And just a reminder that if you missed any of our shows, head on over to iTunes for the full library. There you can find last week's episode on food, an exploration of the history, science, and the ritual. This is Life Examined. We'll be back in a moment. I'm Jonathan Bastian back with Life Examined on KCRW. We'll now continue our conversation with author and environmentalist Terry Tempest Williams. Her latest collection of essays is called Erosion: Essays of Undoing. Well, Terry, we we just heard you recount the incredible story this is of one of your students from China who who felt the sting of racism living in Los Angeles. And I was wondering, how were you impacted by the Black Lives Matter movement and and also uh, how COVID has ravaged Native American communities to the south and to the north of you? Because I sense that these large social questions are always with you and your writing.
1: Watching uh, close dear friends in Navajo country uh, suffer, through this winter has been so heartbreaking hmm. and we have felt so helpless. Um, three of our closest friends, you know, all had COVID. Gratefully, they all survived. Um, I'm thinking of Jonah Yellowman, who I talk about in, in Erosion in particular. You know, Jonah and I have been in contact almost every day through texts or telephone um, or shared ritual ceremony. His greatness of spirit, I am in awe of. You know, I think about Ida Yellowman, who is a nurse, gets up at 4 a.m., unvaccinated for most of the fall, and caring for the elders, caring for the medicine people, caring for mothers with newborn children, hours away, you know, on winter roads, completely isolated, Um, in the dark, making friends, those relatives are safe. Um, You know, I could go on and on. It's just, it's been so moving. And also watching communities mobilize, whether it's Mm -hmm. Utah Dene Bekeia, whether it's the rural Utah project, whether it's, you know, what a group of us here in Castle Valley could do in terms of sending oximeters and um, we did what we could do. Mm -hmm. And, and it's not enough. It's never enough. And then to see the other side that finally when they were able to get their vaccinations in Monument Valley, you know, White Mesa, um, Anath, Montezuma Creek, all these communities, Medici- Mexican Hat. Um, they had extra vaccines. And what they did is they brought it to the town of, of Blanding, who is known for its racism. Mm. And they opened up all of the extra vaccines for the whole community, for the state of Utah. And there, the Diné at the Commons in Blanding, Utah, uh, vaccinated their town, the town that, that doesn't see them. Um, my own nephew went down, who's you know 32, couldn't get a vaccination in Salt Lake, and went down and got it from, you know, uh, blending. So, I mean, these are the kinds of stories, you know, that every community has. And what Jonah said to me is, you know, as a medicine person, he is, that what he went through in COVID has only given him greater insights to what has to happen. And, you know, I think the conversation that I'm hearing in the desert Southwest among native people, among those of us who live here, um, is you know how can the pandemic end if those things which have caused the pandemic don't end you know and so it's the interconnectedness of of all of this it's not just the vaccine that we're going to rise and voila everything is fine the conditions that created the pandemic are still in play including racism including misogyny including White privilege, all of those things. You ask me how has the Black Lives Matter uh, movement affected me? You know, I see it, it with my students, my African American students. I have a student who's lost six family members mm-hmm. to COVID. You know, I can tell you our our son is is Black African from Rwanda, and I see what he has gone through um, in his workplace where in a warehouse, you know, where it's largely black employees, there were no, there was no testing. There were no masks. There were no gloves. Um, The workers had to fight for that. And, you know, so no one is immune Hmm. from what is happening. We may think we are, and especially those of us who are white privileged, but this is systemic it's touching all of us if we allow it to
0: yeah you know one thing i i I love in our conversation is is this recognition of 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 sometimes a stark and dark reality also one of balancing hopefulness and i i know that here in california there is a sense of, of of springtime optimism a change in politics, a, a feeling of, of plants coming up. And yet at the same time, we know that fire season is around the corner always when we reach this point. This is something you've thought about. You've written about fire. Um, and, and when I just bring up the image of these incredible blazes that sweep through the Southwest and really hit California, what what does that mean to you? What What images and ideas come to you?
1: Well, your first point that there can be joy even in the midst of darkness. Mm. I mean, again, this numinous moon in illuminating darkness, you know, that to me, joy can only be experienced knowing that suffering is at the heart of joy. It's very different than the word happy, Mm. um, which is, I think, a momentary fleeting spark. The summer... Our valley was choked in smoke. We had fires all around us um, from Colorado, Utah, and certainly California and the the Pacific Northwest. Um, there was so much smoke in our valley that our smoke detector went off inside. And it was so hot. There were times, you know, it was 114 degrees here in the valley where we live. These sandstone walls on either side of us, you know, operate like an oven. Hmm. And and so we took to night walking and there was something so beautiful about walking at night and seeing the eyeshine shine of the animals you live among, you know, whether it be deer, whether it be bear. And the black bears came down from the La Salles because there was no water there. So it was this poignant moment. And a friend of mine um, that I told you about, Bianca Giever, was in Los Angeles covering, as a reporter for the New York Times and the Daily, was in Los Angeles. She was terrified, you know, and I don't need to tell you when she said, you know, from her vantage point, it was so clogged with smoke. The sky was so gray and dark. The sun looked like a cigarette burning through the fog. And she said, Terry, what do we do? You know, and she said, when I woke up, all I could think of was this phrase, an obituary for the land. Will you write one? And the pre-pandemic me, Jonathan would have said, no, you know, I don't know what that is. I can't do that. The pandemic me said, I will try. And then she said, I need it in an hour. (laughs) And Uh. I sat down and I wrote a piece. And again, it's pen is shovel. You know, it's not perfect. It's born of the moment. And it was, for someone i loved and i think that's that's where we are i'd love to share a piece of this with you may i
0: yes yeah please we'd love that
1: this is called a burning testament with these ashes in hand that have fallen from near and far on the drought cracked desert of utah i raise my fist to a smoke choked sky to honor the holy creatures human and wild who have lost their lives and homes to the galloping flames like riderless horses burning through the west. We are witness to ghostly horizons lit with the scalding colors of red, orange, purple, black, the blowout of close to five million acres of land being ravaged by fires with such velocity it is melting our capacity to feel the full magnitude of what is happening. We are not okay. We are anxious, we are scared. There is no place to run, there is no place to hide. There is only our love and grief to hold us in the terror of all we are seeing, sensing, denying. We can't touch the source of our despair because we can't touch each other. And so we retreat inside when everything outside is screaming. And then this last piece. We cannot breathe. This is our mantra in America now. We cannot breathe because of the smoke. We cannot breathe because of a virus that has entered our homes. We cannot breathe because of police brutality and too many black bodies, brown bodies dead on the streets. We cannot breathe because we are holding our breath for the people and places we love. I was asked to write an obituary for the land, but I realize I am writing an obituary for us, for the life we have lost and can never return to. And within this burning of Western lands, our innocence and denial is in flames. The obituary will be short. The time came and these humans died from the old ways of being. Good riddance. It was time. Their cause of death was the terminal disease of solipsism, whereby humans put themselves at the center of the universe. It was only about them, and in so doing, they had been dead to the world that is alive. To the power of these burning, illuminated Western lands that have shaped our character, inspired our souls, and restored our belief in what is beautiful and enduring, I will never write your obituary because even as you burn, you are throwing down seeds that will sprout and flower. Trees will grow and florists will rise again as living testaments to how one survives change. It is time to grieve and mourn the dead and believe in the power of renewal. If we do not embrace our grief, our sadness will come out sideways in unexpected forms of depression and violence. We must dare to find a proper ceremony to collectively honor the dead from the coronavirus as we approach 200,000 citizens lost. Now we are approaching 600,000 citizens lost. We must honor the lives engulfed in these Western fires and the lives we will continue to lose from the climate crisis at hand. Only then can we begin the work of restoration, respecting the generations to come, as we clear a path toward cooling a warming planet. This will be our joy. Let this be a humble tribute, an exaltation, an homage, and an open-hearted eulogy to all we are losing to fire, to floods, to hurricanes and tornadoes, and the invisible virus that has called us all home and brought us to our knees. We are not the only species that lives and loves and breathes on this miraculous planet called Earth. May we remember this and raise a fistful of ash to all the lives lost that it holds. Grief is love. How can we hold this grief without holding each other? To bear witness to this moment of undoing is to find the strength and spiritual will to meet the dark and smoldering landscapes where we live. We can cry. Our tears will fall like rain in the desert and wash off our skins of ash so our pores can breathe, so our bodies can breathe back the lives that we have taken for granted. I will mark my heart with an X made of ash that says the power to restore life resides here. The future of our species will be decided here, not by facts, but by love and loss. Hand on my heart, I pledge allegiance to the only home I will ever know.
2: Mm.
0: Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. As you were reading that, I, I kind of imagined myself where you are in this beautiful desert landscape, standing atop those incredible canyons of of Utah and Moab and looking down with this amazing perspective on all that has happened over the past year. And there's so much in there. How, how can we, how can we talk about this together? What else can you say about that? Some of the, the emotion, the intensity, the ferocity and the language that you were able to summon in that short piece.
1: You know, two things come to mind, Jonathan. You know, I think about, there's so much talk about this divide in this country Mm. um, that we are in the midst of a very uncivil war. And I don't know about you, but I, I see it in my own family. Mm -hmm. And that's the most difficult thing of all. Of course. And after the election, it was, there was that period where we didn't quite know, you know, I mean, the polls said Biden won, The former president said he won early on Mm -hmm. November 4th in the bowels of the White House. And I thought, I wanted to talk to my uncle. And we've always been very close. He is right of the right. I am left of the left. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. he, his passion is hunting. His love is guns. You know, my passion is nature, a love of birds, but somehow we've we've maintained our relationship, and I I called him. He was a former state senator. Um, he was known for his integrity. He the only money he ever accepted from any PAC was from the NRA because he knew he would never compromise their standards. He joined the Minutemen on the border hmm. of Mexico. I mean, you you get the picture.
0: Yes, yeah.
1: And I called him, and I couldn't get hold of him. I left a message. Um, he called me back. I missed his call. We kept playing this telephone seesaw. I finally called my father and said, you know, I just, I just want to talk to Rich and see how he is and what he's thinking. And um, he said, he's already called me and he doesn't want to talk to you. Yeah. Hmm. And um, to my uncle's credit, he called me back. And he just said, my family's very direct. He said, "Terry, I don't want to talk to you. And I said, why? And he just said, I, I just don't. And I said, Rich, how if we can't talk to each other, where are we? And he said, we're in a civil war. And I said, and how is that going to end? And he just. I finally said, Rich, what can we do to build this bridge? Mm. And he said, it's not going to get built. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, are you going to change your views on the environment? And I said, no. And he said, are you going to change your mind about climate change? No. Are you going to change your mind about abortion and gay rights? No. And he said, I rest my case. And I said, but what are you seeing? And he said, what I'm seeing is militias are gathering, vigilantes are real, and that scares me. And I said, Rich, if that scares you, I'm terrified. Right, right. And I said, so what can we do? And he said, Terry depoliticize your language if you're serious take the politics out of your writing and he said I read erosion I read every page of it every sentence I was not moved I was enraged
2: hmm.
1: and then he said and it's hard for me to share this he said you know you have a gift You've always had this gift, and that was your love of nature. He said, I've known you since you were born. We'd go to California to the ocean. You were the last person to leave. You were the first one in the morning looking for shells. And then when we got in the car, who knows what hocus pocus you were doing down by the water. And he said, you know, if you're serious, go back to beauty. And then maybe I will be moved and i heard him and i said rich i will try and i said what will you do and he said i will continue talking to you wow that's what comes to my mind you know and i have many friends whom i love you know who say you know we don't have an obligation to talk to the oppressors We don't have an obligation to talk to whomever stormed the Capitol and their likes. And believe me, in Utah, we're talking about our neighbors. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't feel that way. You know, I'm interested in what binds us together rather than what tears us apart. And the other thing I think about is I returned this last week to Messiaen's beautiful quartet for the end of time, that he wrote as a war prisoner during World War II. And there he found a, three mus, musicians, one who played the clarinet, one who played the cello, and one who played the piano. And there was a guard who knew who Messian was, this French composer, mm. and he gave them space. It was in the latrine to practice to compose, he gave them paper. And then on a day in February, or maybe it was January, some say 5,000 people gathered. Other accounts say there were 400 prisoners of war who gathered. These four musicians played this quartet for the end of time. And in that moment, stopped time and allowed them to hear this beautiful dissonant, soaring music that actually celebrated bird song, that Messiaen was a man who loved birds. He transcribed bird song, even when he asked, and the clarinetist, in the war, if they could have dawn patrol so they could listen to the birds. And then as, as they were walking across the field, it was the clarinetist who said, will you write a song for me? And he said... I will try. And that's what that quartet came out of. On Saturday, I listened all day to that quartet. That's what it's the only thing I could think of what to do as we hear there might be this fourth wave. You know, just when we think we're 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 almost in the clear, you know, I turned to music, I turned to art, and perhaps you'll think I'm mad, but I got up at dawn thinking, okay, if Messian and his fellow musician were out at dawn patrol, listening to the birds. I took out my computer and on YouTube, found, you know, the quartet for the end of time. Mm. And I played it in this grove of juniper trees at dawn. Mm. And I cannot tell you the birds that came. You know, it was morning doves, it was robins, it was meadowlarks, it was say's Phoebe's, it was ravens, it was starlings, it was glorious. I mean, that's what I think we have to draw from. Hmm. The land itself, music, art, language, birds. Hmm.
0: Our listeners will know that, in fact, as we started our interview, there was a beautiful bird chirping just as you were talking as we started our conversation. So we're surrounded by this, aren't we?
1: Yeah. I mean, just as we speak... I've got the doors open and I can hear the meadowlarks again singing with the full force of spring. We cannot stop spring. We cannot stop joy, even in the midst of of horrendous suffering. Um, That's what I know. You know, how do we find the strength within us not to look away from all that is breaking our hearts? I want to be able to keep my eyes open.
0: Hmm. And I think one thing you have illustrated so beautifully in in the writing and in our conversation today is how we can hold what can feel like two contradictory things together, how grief and love can exist together and how erosion and beauty can exist together. And I I thank you for that. Terry Tempest-Williams, it's been... Uh, it's been an honor and a pleasure to spend this last hour with you. And um, I, I so greatly appreciate the, the stories, the words, and the ideas you've brought on this program today. Thank you so much.
1: Jonathan, thank you. And open invitation to have tea here in the desert that, mm. that you love alongside all of us.
0: I'd love that. Thank you. Once again, that was Terry Tempest Williams, a writer, conservationist, and award-winning author of Erosion, Essays of Undoing, and Refuge, An Unnatural History of Family and Place. She's also a writer-in-residence at the Harvard Divinity School and currently spends her time in Castle Valley, Utah. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. You can also email me your feedback directly at jonathan.bastian at kcrw.org. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.